This morning what we're going to do is to pause in our series from the farewell discourse of Jesus in John 14 through 17. And I'd like, in light of the fact that we are two days away from the election, to turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking today at a passage of Scripture that deals with God's relationship to government. Now, over the course of these prior four Sunday nights, we've done a little series entitled God, Government, and Politics. And I'll probably be doing a little bit of summarization. You'll probably be hearing a few statements made that I've shared over the course of these four Sunday nights. That's meant to be intentional. It's intentional. It's meant to be repetitive because we want to reinforce some of these ideas in which the way in which God's Word shapes the issues of the hour that we find at hand. So First Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 13, down through verse 17, Peter, writing these words in the time period in which Nero was the emperor of Rome, writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So we're going to ask our Lord now to give us tremendous insight as we look into these verses because we want to be true to his word and relevant to the days in which we live, trying to apply truth to life. So let's look to our Lord and pray. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you for who you are, the sovereign God, the God who's in control the one Father who, above and beyond, deserves primary allegiance. We know it was the psalmist who said, it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. Leadership comes and leadership goes, but the sovereign God remains. And what we need, Father, is to understand the enduring principles, the biblical truths that relate to the times in which we live. So, Father, we want to come here now with a a sense where the soul is prepared to be stretched so that we can better absorb the truth that is found here. You know our needs personally as well as nationally. So it's my prayer that again the Holy Spirit be warming our hearts, 
Holy Spirit be engaging our minds. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at this tree that's appearing on the screen. It's an elm tree. What does that have to do with Sunday, let alone this coming Tuesday? You know, back in the colonial time period, firebrands were very useful when people didn't have matches. The only heat in a house came from the fireplace. Firebrand was a stick of wood with a spark of fire at one end. There were three men in that particular time period that were known as the firebrands that led towards the Revolutionary War. One, Sam Adams, who was a New Englander, he was one who had the tremendous ability to be able to stir people to take action. The second, Patrick Henry, who had incredible oratorical skills. And the third was Thomas Paine, who was gifted in the area of writing. Keep looking at that elm tree. For you see, it took a long time for the people in the colonies to begin to think of themselves as Americans. At the beginning, they thought of themselves primarily as English, even if they had not necessarily come from England. And when they stopped seeing themselves as English, they began to view themselves as Virginians or New Englanders or Carolinians. But you see, the times were becoming difficult. These were trying times, difficult times, as Thomas Paine would write. Something had to be done in the hearts and in the mindset of the people, and, well, the firebrands helped to ignite it. Samuel Adams started something known as Committees of Correspondence between the various colonies. They were groups of prominent citizens who wrote back and forth between each other, between the colonies, to help each other with problems. They became friends. And so Samuel Adams started a group known as the Sons of Liberty. And in Boston, the Sons met under an old elm tree. an old elm tree that Adams called the Liberty Tree. But what's interesting is that as soon as the British got a chance, they chopped down that tree. A Liberty Tree still stands today in Annapolis, Maryland, dedicated to it. What fascinates me about that situation is that it's illustrative of the tremendous tension between authority and liberty, which is true to this very day. For you see, as far as the British were concerned, they had to exercise authority and chop down that tree. As far as the colonial people were concerned, that tree represented 
liberty, and they had to protect that tree. Of course, trees were not the first. This elm tree was not the first time a tree had to deal with the matter of authority and liberty because there was a place known as the Garden of Eden where there was one who appeared on the scene and he challenged them to be like God, to assume authority, thinking that in turn they might be able to experience greater liberty by eating of that tree. From the earliest stages of history on to the present, there has been this tremendous tension between degrees of authority in terms of government and the degrees of liberty in relationship to government. And it's that tension we want to explore in these verses this morning with the elm tree centered in our minds. I've got an elm tree in my front yard. It's called liberty. I look at it every time I'm cutting around it and ponder the significance of what it means. There are three establishments I want you to see here in these verses that I want to draw out for us that I think relate well to where our nation is at today, where a believer is at in relationship to this nation today. And the first could be put this way. Then number one, God has established a basis for governmental authority. And we see it in verse 13 down through verse 15. We're going to work the exposition of this passage and allow for some historical scenes to appear now and then to illustrate it. God has established a basis for governmental authority. Now notice how this begins. It begins with a command. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now notice here then that a command is given in verse 13. The word submit carries with it the idea of a military strategy by which a soldier is submitting to his superior a higher authority. But notice it does not merely say submit, it says submit yourselves. Which means you've almost got to talk to your soul. Challenge your will to submit because it does not come naturally in a fallen world. Until you look to the second member of the Trinity who came to do the will of the Father, spiritual equality and yet practical authority, And how the second member of the Trinity, though equal to the Father, was still willing to submit himself to the governing authorities who sentenced him to death and go to their cross. But in turn, God had final say where he in turn died for our sins. Notice who had ultimate authority in that situation. Submit yourselves. Submit yourselves, you and I are told, For the Lord's sake, not for your nation's sake, not for your political preference's sake, for the Lord's sake, this is an opportunity for impact. If you connect this to what's written in Romans 13, you and I come to the realization that 
authority is derived in God and delegated to human government, which would have run countercultural to the thinking person in the time in which Peter was writing in the days of Nero, because the coinage in the Roman Empire ascribed deity to the emperor. Now, here is Peter, who is challenging you and challenging me to begin to think through how do we manage this tension of liberty and authority. We have to have first principles established. Authority is derived in God, not in government, not in Nero, but delegated to human government. So it doesn't merely say submit. It says submit yourselves. There's going to have to be a biblical conversation happening within the soul, challenging us scripturally to submit, because it's for the Lord's sake, you see, because it's been established by God, not by people. And notice furthermore, it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now I want you to notice the scene that's appearing next on the screen here. And I want you to be thinking about what's going on. The scene describes visually for us an event in 1787. After the great 1776 statement, politically, now the great minds of the colonial people gather together for this constitutional convention. Those that are going to be part of this process are sworn by George Washington to total secrecy to such a degree that the windows were closed in Philadelphia, even in the midst of 90-plus degree temperatures. They didn't have bathtubs. They didn't take showers. This was one smelly event. It happened through the entire summer. Finally, on on the 17th of September of 1787, the Constitution was finished and ready to be signed. Two Virginians, Edmund Randolph and George Mason, as well as Elbridge Jerry from Massachusetts, left without signing because they didn't think it was good enough. It wasn't perfect, said Franklin, but it was better than he expected. It astonishes me, he said, to find this system approaching so near perfection as it does. I think it will astonish our enemies. He leaned forward and looked at the chair that George Washington was sitting upon. Carved on the chair's back was a half-sun with sunbeams. Franklin said he had often wondered if it were a rising or a setting sun. Now he knew the sun was rising. Now what fascinates us about this Constitution is that It was shaped in many ways by the brilliance of James Madison, who was schooled by the first president of Princeton University, John Witherspoon, who was a pastor, 
who was steeped in theology and valued the writings of a man named Samuel Rutherford who argued for what is known as lex rex. Law is king. Up until that point in Great Britain, people would argue for Rex Lex, king is law. As would have been assumed in the days, frankly, of Nero. But this great, great pastor, Samuel Rutherford, comes along and says, it is not Rex Lex, it is Lex Rex. Because he understood that when Jesus Christ came into the world, According to Matthew chapter 5, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which means the moral law is still in existence today, and the moral law should shape the national law. Which, of course, creates that unique situation of what happened with Judge Ray Moore, Roy Moore, where in Alabama is the Supreme Court Justice. He had had this great monument of the Ten Commandments positioned in there. And then a higher court had it removed, and ultimately he was removed from office. But meanwhile, of course, as you and I know, in the Supreme Court of the United States, there is etched visually Moses with the Ten Commandments. Do you feel the tension in the land you see? Now, we covered this on a Sunday night. What's critically important, then, is to understand that when we go Tuesday to vote, moral law has not been abolished. Moral law has been fulfilled. Moral law shapes national law. Madison, who was involved in the writings of this Constitution, was shaped by Witherspoon, who was shaped by the writings of Samuel Rutherford, who established the idea of Lex Rex. Are we any, any are we surprised when the Declaration of Independence informs us that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights? and in a very strongly rights-oriented culture, we get involved in constitutional conversations and ask, and where are rights from which are they derived? And so, as you've probably done by now, but if you haven't, you've been ordering for your Christmas stockings. They're going to be hanging over the fireplace this Christmas. Constitutions. That you'll be popping into each of the stockings, you see, because what we want believers to do in this church, this growing body of believers, is to cultivate biblically-based constitutional conversations, where we understand that 1787 was shaped by 1776, that Madison was shaped by Witherspoon, who was shaped by Rutherford, who understood that it is not Rex Lex, it is Lex Rex, and that Jesus Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So moral law is meant then to be the shaper of national law. And why I personally are there is therefore interested in people who are committed to putting on the Supreme Court 
justices who value original intent. And so we are back then to this whole idea of submit yourselves, not for our own political preference sake, but for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men derived in God, delegated to humankind. And you and I are told then, whether to the king as the supreme authority, but it is lex rex, and so even this king, even Nero, is to submit then to this higher moral law, the moral law of the universe that God has established. Now notice with me, furthermore, the command is given in verse 13, The purpose, then, is established in verse 14. Notice the very limited form of government. Verse 14. To governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, what happens if they punish those who do right and commend those who do wrong. I'm glad you asked. Well, you'll find that in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers, Peter and John, were being told that they were not allowed to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right after, or right before the fact that Jesus had commissioned them to go into all the world, preach the gospel, They were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. And now you have these government officials telling them that they are not allowed to teach it all in the name of Jesus. So how do you appropriately respond? Peter and John replied in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight, not in our sight, in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So now you bring into the national conversation a biblically informed, evidentially based, constitutionally aware conversation because you've been sticking these in your Christmas stockings, you see. And you're becoming, as a family, more and more aware of what has been established, how it's come about, and what it is meant to be. Now, by doing that, then, you recognize the command given in 13 and the purpose, then, for government established in 14 which shapes the whole idea of a judiciary, which leads then to the silencing effect of verse 15, because you are reasoning in this culture, in the society, effectively, biblically, wisely. For it is God's will, not our will. It is God's will that by doing good, speaking of our actions, You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So then, you and I are challenged to be able to communicate effectively in a culture that is biblically unaware, but I would also argue 
constitutionally unaware. And I think the most effective form of dialogue in this culture now is to go back to first principles, be saturated with the authority of God's word, where authority is derived, and then become constitutionally aware where authority is delegated, you see. Which leads us then to this next, this next scene that appears on the screen. Because notice the oath of office. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States. Notice the wording very carefully. It doesn't say, and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend my policies for the United States. No, this is Lex Rex. And will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The Constitution, you see, of the United States. Now you're looking at this and you're saying, I've heard this uttered. There's something missing. What is it? New York City was the capital of the young United States when George Washington was inaugurated as the first president. The inauguration was a powerful, powerful statement globally. The Bible was placed on a red velvet cushion and opened at random to Genesis 49 and 50, which many at that time considered providential because it referred to God reassuring Jacob regarding the land he was to enter. And Washington placed his hand on the open Bible, recited this oath you are looking at, and then added these words, I swear, so help me God. He then bent down, kissed the open Bible, And when he added the words and kissed the Bible, Washington was following a practice used in royal coronations in British and colonial courts of that day, ironically. But you see, the Constitution was written before Washington became president, not after. Lex. Rex. He was making a statement visually to the nations globally of where true authority is to be found. Out of that, then, you see this next scene. Well, Washington took his oath of office on April 30th, 1789 first president of the United States. Don't miss the point. The Constitution was established before the presidency. 
So when one says, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office, President of the United States, and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, he, in essence, is making a statement of lex rex. He is swearing oath not to his own personal policies and political preferences. He is swearing oath to what preceded and what was established And now you and I understand still better the thinking and the principles that went in behind the writing of this and who mentored whom and who discipled whom and how Witherspoon discipled and and mentored Madison and Madison, the brilliant one who crafts these thoughts together. And we begin to think through that God has established, not us, not we the people, but God has established a basis for for governmental authority. Franklin saw it. The sun was rising. It was rising. But now, you and I are brought to this second establishment that's found here in, in, verse, in verse 16, where God has, second of all, has established a basis for personal liberty. And you say, Gary, where do we get this? Read it carefully and apply it because this is Peter writing in the days of Nero. And he's guiding us regarding how we handle the political. Live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. And here comes the irony. Live as servants of God. Typically, servants lack freedom. But when you have established in your own heart of hearts who has authority over your life, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Jesus has lordship, and lordship determines liberty. And whoever is Lord of your life defines the boundaries of liberty for your life. And so in this culture, which is very similar to the days of the judges, where everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes, they assumed lordship over their lives, and therefore they defined liberty for their lives, which leads us then to the challenges of today, such as Roe v. Wade and the likes. Who defines the whole issue of freedom of choice? Liberty is governed by authority. The question simply is, and who has ultimate authority? If moral law shapes natural, national law, if the, if the Constitution was written prior to the presidency, shaped by a Madison who was tutored by a Witherspoon who drew on the ideas of Lex Rex, not Rex Lex from the writings of Rutherford, we begin to see a flow of thought here that allows us then to be able to take those constitutions we've flipped into those those stockings and carry on a biblically-based, lordship-oriented, constitutional conversation to begin to re-engage the culture that seems to have a vacuum in the public square. 
where? How is this culture needing this kind of Christian? Because not only is this culture lacking biblical understanding, this culture lacks constitutional understanding. And we've got to bring the culture back, you see, to first things. And that's why, again, the colonial churches had constitutional conversations in midweek as people examined the principles found there in light of the expositions that were being given by pastors on Sunday mornings. So now, how does this work itself out for our, for our nation? Look at this next scene. And there's Patrick Henry. There's a college today named after him. Ten years after his great Stamp Act speech, it was no longer safe for Henry and for others under British authority to be meeting together to try to create a government within their own smaller section of Virginia. Senior looking at Port of Boston was closed. English soldiers were in the city. Massachusetts Assembly had been dissolved. The question was, would Virginia sit idly by? Henry was part of that gathering that Samuel Adams had established around the elm tree where they worked out the principles of authority and relationship to liberty. Henry stepped into the aisle, bowed his head, held out his arms, pretended his arms were chained as he began calmly. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. Then his voice strengthened as he went on. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? Is life so dear, peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? And then Patrick Henry threw off the imaginary chain, stood up straight and cried out, Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And our minds politically are transported back to what took place for eternity when one laid down his life so that we might have eternal freedom in Christ Jesus alone. Hung on a tree, taking on the curse where a prior tree in history had been violated. You see, what we're doing here at this point is that we are establishing in our minds the biblically healthy tension between authority and liberty. I can assure you, lordship determines the boundaries of liberty. And when a person assumes lordship or when 
a judiciary assumes lordship, or when a nation's leadership assumes lordship, then those entities will be the ones determining liberty. Abortionist assumes lordship and determines the liberty in the womb or the lack of. And so what we've got to be absolutely clear is this. We can't have a privatized faith, but nor can we simply settle for a politicized faith, putting faith and trust in in governmental officials who may promise something today but reverse course tomorrow or simply can't see their promises fulfilled. And so where do we turn? We turn to the one who addressed the tree issue, the one who died on the cross to save us from our sins. And so we share that gospel as we go into the world making disciples of all the nations. But that requires something of us. Which takes us to this next scene appearing on the screen. The wording. You see, as you become more and more saturated with the Scriptures and become increasingly constitutionally aware, then you become utterly committed to what I believe is the issue of the hour, penned by Madison, when it was becoming clear that there lacked a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, he went back to work bridging then his Bill of Rights to the statement in the Declaration of Independence that we were endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. So he addresses now what I'll call first rights. And in a culture of rights orientation, such as equal rights, freedom of choice, things of that nature, take a look at this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, bear in mind, Great Britain's religion was led by their king. So now Madison, drinking up the thinking of Lex Rex, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the freedom, free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. Now, what I want us to recognize is that in this culture, there is a major collision. Two trains are moving toward one another. Freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And the question will be somewhere along the way, which will give? And watch the hate crime laws and how this gets played out. What will happen 5, 10, 20 years from now if a pastor is expounding from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and onwards regarding what the biblical authority states regarding matters of homosexual practice? How does this get worked out then when so much is showing up on YouTube? Where do we go from here? I would argue then that God desires courageous believers who've worked out first principles, pulling together what we are covering here, thinking through this tension of authority and liberty, and pondering how this fits into the value of tolerance in our culture, 
were, for example, at the Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, the student chapter of the Christian Legal Society was denied any status on campus because it wouldn't abandon its requirement that members commit themselves to Christian norms regarding sexual morality. Sexual morality. In other words, who has the authority to talk about the liberty of sexual morality? You see where we're working from and where we're going? Or in our states and localities, with other pressures, where authorities in Washington State and Illinois have attempted to force pharmacists against their conscience to dispense morning-after pills? Or in New Mexico, where a Christian wedding photographer was fined for violation of a state human rights act because she refused to take the business of a same-sex couple who claimed to want her services at their civil union ceremony? What we see here in the cultural conversation is that there is a rephrasing subtly occurring. Maybe you're spotting it as you're observing the news where certain political sorts are not speaking so much of freedom of religion now as freedom of worship. Now, it's a subtle exchange. But with that subtle exchange, it removes Christian values from the public square, creates a vacuum in the public square where we're meant to be sought in light. Instead of speaking of freedom of religion, they're now just simply speaking of freedom of worship. So then we privatize faith, keep it in a Sunday morning experience with no, with no impact upon what happens the rest of the week. But you see, Jesus Christ did not abolish moral law. It's still alive. Jesus Christ fulfilled moral law. And so because of that then, you and I have got to look very carefully even at the Affordable Care Act where every employer with more than 50 employees must provide at this moment group health insurance that includes in the category of preventative medicine for women no-cost coverage of sterilization services and FDA-approved prescription contraceptives, including those that are better understood as abortifacients because they can act to destroy embryos rather than merely prevent conception. So... Hats off to the Hercules industry of Colorado who wouldn't bow to this bail, but instead recognize the moral law that supersedes the growing cultural law in the land in which we live, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It takes me back, as I mentioned the other night, to a conversation I had with my oldest son, who's in the process of applying to 20-plus medical schools while working as a histologist at University of Chicago Medical Center. And the specialists there keep telling him, don't do it. Don't do it. We want out. That's our recommendation to you. And he's on the phone with me saying, Gary, Dad, what do you think? Man, do we need some courageous 
medical personnel. So I'm on the phone with my youngest son, and I said, would you consider constitutional law? <laughs> While your older brother is looking at the medical, would you strongly consider constitutional law? Don't be a pastor. Consider this and combine a major philosophy with history and, and ponder how we can impact this culture by going back to original intent and see how Madison was shaped by Witherspoon and how Witherspoon was influenced by Rutherford. And we, we bring Lex Rex back to the forefront, which leads us then to this final establishment. Thirdly, God has established a, a basis for social dignity. So you say, well, Gary, Gary, how do I go about carrying on a conversation in this highly, highly conflicted culture? Look at verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Thirdly, God has established a basis for social dignity here then, in light of now working through authority and liberty, you and I carry on a biblically framed, constitutionally informed conversation. Show proper respect to everyone, including people who disagree with you politically, philosophically, because they're made in the image of God too. And develop through winsome ways and effective speech and well-reasoned, theologically-based, constitutionally-aware arguments. Show them, Father, I pray, how we go about cultivating this mentality where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So what do you do practically? Love the brotherhood of believers. We're in a divided world. They need to see a unified people. Fear God. Honor the king. George Washington had to somehow figure that out. Look at these two pictures side by side. And imagine how believers had to wrestle with what I just read. When Washington was asked to be a member of Great Britain's General Braddock's staff, he had said at one point earlier in his career, that he hoped to serve king and country. Yet in 1782, Colonel Louis Nicola wrote a letter to Washington suggesting that he use his army to seize power, proclaim himself king. And Washington replied, quote, you could not have found a person to whom your schemes were more disagreeable. Unquote. Lux Rex, you know. And now we've set up a, a political conversation for the next 48 hours where we have authority that shapes liberty, that engages dignity, which takes us back to a tree, a liberty tree. Look at this closing picture. And there you have it. A biblically informed, constitutionally driven 
in the mindsets of some approach to working out the issues of authority, liberty, and dignity in a way that honors God and blesses a nation. God bless the United States of America. Thanking you, Father, for who you are. Thanking you for what you've done. Thanking you, Father, for sending your Son into this world to live under the law in order that we might be freed because he allowed himself to die on that tree. And for this we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.